This week, how marine mammals took tuberculosis to the Americas. Our microbiome tuberculosis from the New World, from Peru a thousand years ago, actually clustered together with the strains that you find in seals today. And scientists draw a better map of Neanderthals in Europe, but it twists the story of when they vanished. We're seeing modern humans being present in one part, albeit of Europe in the south, and Neanderthals present in other parts. And this suggests that the process of dis- disappearance was a lot more complex than we thought. Plus the microbial life lurking beneath the Antarctic ice. This is a Nature podcast for August the 21st, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Noah Baker. When Europeans first explored the New World, North and South America, they exchanged exotic products like coffee and tobacco for Western delights such as weapons and diseases. Scientists studying infectious disease thought that was how tuberculosis got to the Americas. It first emerged in Africa and spread to Europe, and these European-looking strains are present in the New World too. There's no sign of a different American strain. So when scientists examined 1,000-year-old human remains from Peru, they were surprised to find a TB strain that looked different. Skeletons can display telltale signs of infection with TB, lesions in their bones. The team probed three such skeletons for DNA and they found a TB strain that usually infects seals. But before we hear any more about those infected seals, here's team leader Johannes Krauser with the main TB question that plagued his team. So how could it come to the Americas in the last 5,000 years if there was no land bridge anymore, if no land animals could actually cross, let's say, from Asia to the Americas and bring that disease? We looked deeper and we wanted to see what is the closest animal strain to our ancient strains that we have um, found in the Americas a thousand years ago. And what we then found, which was a big surprise to us, was our microbiome tuberculosis from the New World, from Peru a thousand years ago, actually clustered together very tightly with the strains that you find in seals today. So we're actually seal strains that were extremely closely related. So how do you think these seals would have acquired TB in the first place? We propose that there must have been some sort of zoonosis from some animal to seals, probably happening somewhere um, in Africa. And then seals transmitted the disease over the ocean, um, probably first to the um, Americas, or from Africa to the Americas, and later on to New Zealand, as well as to Australia, within seal populations. And then in in the Americas, somehow it then also um, got um, into the human populations, probably due to the very intensive seal hunting that occurred on the coast of uh, South America. And these mammals arrived in the Americas before, long before the arrival of any Europeans. Yes, so um, from the molecular dating we have um, performed, we think that the disease arrived maybe something like 500 uh, after Christ, so in the last maybe 2,000 or 1,500 years it probably arrived um, in the Americas. When do you suspect this particular strain of TB adapted to humans? So we cannot say 100% sure that it indeed adapted to humans. It seems to have adapted. We have several mutations that 
all those three individuals that we found where we could reconstruct complete genomes have in common. We see even mutations that are likely good candidates for human adaptation. However, we don't have that strains um, in people today, so we cannot really say for sure that it is adapted to humans and can be passed on from human to human. To really um, nail this hypothesis, we would have to find um, tuberculosis in North America and in inland populations in South America to say for sure um, that it has not just been several times um, transmitted from seals to humans, but in fact humans were actually transmitting it to other humans also over longer distances. But that's something that we would have to show in uh, follow-up studies. So are these seals the only route of entry um, that you think TB had back then? At least we have no other good um, explanation. There would, of course, be the possibility by birds. So it is known that birds can also get a form of tuberculosis is called Mycobacterium um, avium. But there was no way that there could have been some sort of um, land animal migrating to the Americas at that time period because the Bering Strait was already underwater. How do these findings fit into wider TB research? So first of all, it gives us the first um, really deep um, molecular fossils that are more than a thousand years old. So that allows us to say how old is the disease? When did it actually evolve? What we could show is that this was only happening within the last 5,000 years. So it's a rather recently emerged infectious disease. And what we can also get here is we can get a mutation rate, a long time mutation rate of the pathogen. So we can learn how fast does this pathogen actually change in its genetic structure? So what's the mutation rate? And that's, of course, also an inf interesting um, uh, information for, for example, medical doctors to know how fast might those pathogens adapt, for example, to new medications, um, especially in the time of antibiotic resistance. So this is a very important information to learn more about the evolutionary rates of pathogens over longer time periods. That was Johannes Krauser from the University of Tübingen in Germany. Chemical-throwing comets and shape-making robots. They're both in the research highlights a little later on. But before that, deep beneath the ancient ice sheets of Antarctica, there's something a little surprising. A lake. Subglacial Lake Willens, to be exact. Lakes like these are some of the most isolated bodies of water on Earth, and they've captured the imagination of Brent Christner from Louisiana State University and a dream team of polar scientists and students. Brent and his team travelled thousands of kilometres across the ice with tonnes of equipment to drill down through the ice and into the lake. They were on the search for life. I gave Brent a call and asked why they were so interested in subglacial Lake Willens. You know, there's an adage that where there's water, there is life. And, and so the idea that there is water underneath the ice sheet is reasonable to assume that there could be life there. But, but, but life actually requires a lot more than just water. It requires nutrients. It requires a source of energy. And so the driving question that has propelled people like myself and others involved in this research is what is that source of energy that a community like this could harvest if it's a kilometers below the ice in the coldest place on, on Earth? And so how did you go about studying this lake? I mean, it's not, not an easy task. 
It is a difficult system to study. You know, other lake ecosystems, you get a boat and you go out in the middle of it and you drop a sample bottle in it and, and you get your lake water or your sediment sample. Our challenge here is that we have to go in one of the most remote places on the planet and then to actually access the environment that we intend to study, we have a, quite a barrier, a, a, an ice sheet, something that we have to drill through and we have to drill into it in such a way that we don't contaminate it. And so what have you found down there? You've, you, you know, after a lot of work, you managed to penetrate into that lake all the way from up there in the ice. What did you find when you finally got inside? The life forms that we found in the lake are microbial. These are species of bacteria and archaea, single-celled organisms. Uh, the kinds of things that we might expect to endure an environment is as harsh as this. We know from some of the measurements that we've done on these organisms that they are alive in that they can, we can feed them substrates that they quite readily use. We also know that uh, a very important group of organisms are there. We refer to them as autotrophs. These are organisms that have the capacity to use carbon dioxide as a carbon source. Unlike a surface lake ecosystem where there'd be phototrophic organisms, that would be filling this role. In subglacial lake willens, that role has to be filled by chemosynthetic organisms. So organisms that are using some form of chemical energy to drive their metabolism. And, and you brought samples of, of these organisms back up to the surface again. How long would it have been since those organisms, or you know, the, the ancestors of those organisms, um, had had contact with the, the surface world, as it were? Probably we're talking on time frames that could be a million years since, since these organisms would have had uh, contact with the surface. Based on the analyses we've done to date, we don't see extraordinary differences between them and, and uh, examples of surface biota that they're um, related to. But that's probably because this is really just not much time. And when you're talking about organisms that have been evolving for billions of years, uh, um, a million years really isn't much time to detect an evolutionary change. Is this one of the most extreme environments that life has been found on Earth? It certainly ranks up there. Uh, you might say that it's extreme because of the absence of light and the very cold temperatures and the depth from the surface. Certainly those are also stresses that organisms that are in, uh, in deep ocean environments or in the southern ocean where the temperature is very cold also endure. I guess the one unique stress or one unique challenge that organisms in subglacial willens face um, is, this, is this isolation, this isolation from sources of energy from the surface, this isolation from the photosphere. Um, this, I see, is the, is the most extreme factor in these Antarctic lakes. And the big question that this raises for me is this kind of extreme environment, this isolated environment, you found life there. Does this tell us anything about the possibility of life in other inhospitable environments, potentially even away from Earth? I think that this does nothing but strengthen the case for, for life on other icy bodies um, in our own solar system and beyond. You know, the first time we go to Antarctica, the first place we select to drill a hole to the bottom and look for life, we find it. And really, the kinds of conditions we're talking about, it isn't really that much of a stretch to suggest that similar conditions on a place like the icy moon of Jupiter, Europa, 
it's got the, an ocean underneath its 50 to 100 kilometer ice shell the size of our own ocean. Why can't life exist there? Maybe a bigger question would be if we go there someday and don't find life, why is there not life there? Brent Christner from Louisiana State University. Now it's time for the best science from outside nature. It's the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. Astronomers have taken detailed pictures of organic compounds flowing out of two comets. These rocky space clumps can be breeding grounds for organic molecules and may even have seeded life on Earth. An international team used the ALMA telescope in Chile to observe comet Lemon and comet Ison, both hurtling through our solar system. They found molecules like hydrogen cyanide and formaldehyde flying off them. It seems comets act like mini-chemistry labs for molecules, forming these chemicals within their nuclei and spitting them out. Other molecules are formed in the atmosphere around the main comet. More in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. A swarm of a thousand robots, each no bigger than an Oreo cookie, can self-assemble into various shapes. The natural world uses self-assembly all the time, like when proteins fold themselves up. But engineering a system like this is usually expensive and difficult. Now, a Harvard team built simple, cheap robots that move around by vibrating on little legs and communicate using low-powered infrared light. The team programmed the swarm with some basic rules, a shape and a starting point. Over a few hours, the swarm could make a letter K, a star and a spanner, because who doesn't want to build a spanner out of tiny bots? Even though each robot is simple, they can manage complex behaviours in a group, a bit like the podcast team. That paper is in science. Neanderthals vanished from Europe right after modern-looking humans arrived, the story usually goes. But we know precious few details. When exactly did Neanderthals go extinct, and where? Did the big-bodied hunter-gatherers overlap with the newly-arrived humans for hundreds of years, thousands, or never? Tom Hyam and his team from the University of Oxford have some answers, thanks to advances in radiocarbon dating of very ancient bones. They used the technique to precisely date Neanderthal remains from 40 sites across Europe. Hyam tells nature reporter Ewan Calloway all about the latest plot twist. What's keeping us from getting a, a clearer picture of what happened when, you know, humans arrived? One of the big problems with this period and understanding exactly what happened when modern humans arrived has always been the, the lack of a reliable chronology. Sites have been dated on the basis of one or two dates, sometimes sometimes a few more, but not too many. And the, the problems with radiocarbon dating at this particular period can see two different colleagues arguing over the same data, but interpreting the data in a very different way. And so what our work has been focusing on has been trying to improve that situation. Tell us about this, this latest work that you're, you're describing in Nature. The work we've been doing is uh, the result of about a six to seven year study in which we've been working on improving the radiocarbon dating and the chronologies from a range of the most important sites in, in Western Europe, uh, from running from Spain and Portugal all the way to the Near East and, and Russia. So we've been, we've been working to try and apply these improved techniques to significantly improving the chronology and the precision 
of the dates of various of these technologies and industries related to modern humans and Neanderthals in this part of the world. What's the new story that's emerging about Neanderthals and humans? I think for the first time we've managed to provide a, a date by which Neanderthals appear to have been extinct and disappeared right across the continent. And this has been done by comparing dates from uh, around 40 sites uh, right, across, uh, right across Europe. And we found that the last Neanderthals uh, date to between just over 39,000 to just under 41,000 years ago. So this calendar date fixes for the first time when Neanderthals disappeared from the fossil record. Do your, do your new results suggest any overlap between humans and Neanderthals before they went extinct? This is um, one of the most interesting aspects of the study. Um, in 2011, a paper in Nature showed that the Ulitsian industry, Ulitsian is named after a site in the southern part of Italy, the boot of the heel of the boot of Italy. Uh, the Ulitsian industry instead of being associated with, with Neanderthals as previously thought, was actually associated with modern humans. And what we found is that the earliest evidence for the Eleusian that we've managed to date dates to around forty-five to 46,000 years ago. Given its association with modern humans, this now means that there is an overlap between early modern humans in Europe and Neanderthals in other parts of Europe of between 2,500 to about 5,500 years. What's the significance of seeing such a long overlap in, in at least parts of Europe? Well, it's a surprise to us because, as I say, we, we thought at the beginning that the picture would be somewhat different from this. We, we envisaged a, a scenario where modern humans came into Europe, spread reasonably rapidly, and Neanderthals disappeared comparatively early after that process began. But here we're seeing a, a completely different picture. We're seeing modern humans being present in one part, albeit of Europe in the south, and Neanderthals present in other parts. And this suggests that the process of dis disappearance was a lot more complex than we thought. There may be a um, mosaic pattern in terms of these populations, that p populations of modern humans and Neanderthals were living contemporaneously for quite some period of time in different parts of Europe. Could Neanderthals and humans have interacted and, and even interbred during this period? Well, this is one of the big, the big questions in paleoanthropological research. As I said, we know that modern humans and Neanderthals did interbreed. We don't know exactly where that happened, and we don't know how often it happened, although modelers suggest that it may have happened, uh, that there may have been a successful interbreeding event about once in every 50 years during the course of this transitional period. It's fair, I think, to say that, uh, that this kind of um, scenario does appear to provide some support for proponents of what's been called an acculturation scenario, in which modern humans present in Europe uh, may have had some cultural interaction with Neanderthals. Does your new timeline, does it give us, give us any insight into why Neanderthals went extinct and, and, and why humans survived? It adds something to the, to the story, and it adds, uh, I, I would say, some, some degree of complexity uh, to it. I think what we can envisage is, and we know this certainly from uh, genetic evidence, we think that there's a, there's a degree of um, low genetic diversity amongst Neanderthals at or around the time of the first modern humans coming into, coming into Europe. And this may mean that, that, they, that there was a lower population of Neanderthals at that time, and they may have been um, spread thinly across the environment. Modern humans coming into Western Europe may have eventually simply uh, been too large in number and may have swamped the, the, the Neanderthals that were living there. That was Tom Hyam talking to Ewan Calloway.
News time now and joining me in the studio is Chief News Editor David Ray and Chief Online Editor Celeste Beaver. Welcome both. David, you first with a story about drone regulation. Yeah, so drones, the new technology that I think a lot of researchers are finding incredibly useful because of its uh, their versatility. So these are little sort of aircraft that sort of uh, can be used by kids as much as they can by the military and researchers and have particular value in um, paleontological research and archaeology, of course, because they can fly over at low heights and, and sort of capture or image uh, at whole sites. But a slight difficulty or certainly spanner in the works for US researchers who've been told uh, told a couple of months ago that they're not allowed to use these uh, drones if there is any commercial aspect to, the, to, the, to their use. And slightly bizarrely, this in- includes all aspects of research. So the only researchers in the US who are allowed to use them are um, people working at public institutions or, or, or government-run universities. And these regulations were actually set out a few years ago. Yeah, they would be. So this is a reaffirmation of an existing policy by the, the Federal Aviation Administration that um, that has existed for a while, but obviously very few people knew about it. So researchers were happily using these uh, these machines to carry out work in the States without knowing that, in fact, they weren't allowed to do that. As is mentioned in the news piece, it it excludes and permits certain groups. Yeah, so the interesting dichotomy here is that you can have a child using one of these machines in their back garden that they've bought for you know low cost from a toy shop, but of course researchers can't use them, which uh, is obviously frustrating researchers and possibly stopping a lot of work going on. And how have researchers responded to this? Well, in a number of ways. I mean, a few of them have told us off the record that they're they're ignoring the guidelines. Obviously, a few of them didn't know about them, so they're having to to sort out different methods of of gathering the same type of information. And also, it's scaling off a few people from actually using them because I think a a 50-page application needs to go in. In one example we have of a guy who's um, surveying uh, soybean fields, and for every field he wants to look at, he's having to to apply with a a 50-page application. And the FAA isn't particularly helping things by clamping down on this and and serving researchers with uh, cease and desist orders. Is there any opportunity for researchers to campaign against this? Yeah, well, there's a little bit. I mean, the new guidelines that the FAA is going to going to come out with and these are based all around the safety of these devices which obviously is a, is a real concern uh, but at the moment we're in a bit of a limbo because those guidelines are behind the times so the difficulty we have here and why this situation has arisen is because the FAA hasn't yet come out with these safety guidelines therefore they're unlikely to change things before September the fifth, uh, September next year at the earliest. Okay thanks David. Celeste over to you with a story about polio. Yeah, so this story actually starts back in 2010 um, when there was a really serious and surprisingly deadly outbreak of polio in Congo. Um, It infected over 400 people and killed half of them. And no one really knew why, whether it was related to um, patchy vaccination or something else. And just this week, some researchers have finally analysed the strain that caused the outbreak and found that it's resistant to some forms of the vaccine against polio. Do we know what's making this strain resistant? Yeah, so they sequenced the virus and they found a never-before-seen combination of two mutations um, and both were in the DNA that codes for the proteins in the virus's coat. So it makes it really hard for antibodies to stick to the virus. And I guess there was sort of some good news and bad news associated with this. So researchers uh, were interested to have kind of solved this medical mystery. And also the other piece of good news is that it's not resistant to the strongest form of vaccine, the oral polio vaccine. And that's actually how they stopped the outbreak in Congo from spreading further afield. So the virus was controlled because they finally went out and just vaccinated the whole population of the surrounding area. 
the kind of more scary or worrying part of this is that the researchers took the virus sample and tested it out on um, samples taken from some German students who are vaccinated with the vaccine common in developed countries, which is a much weaker dead vaccine. And um, between 15 and 30 percent of them wouldn't have been protected against this strain of polio. The other kind of worrying thing is that the researchers actually think that these kinds of strains are, we don't see them very often, so that they think they're probably not very fit compared to the other forms of polio. But the world is at the moment trying to stamp out polio and getting quite close. And the theory is that maybe as we get closer to stamping it out, these other strains are going to become more dominant as the other ones disappear and they have less competition. So this could be something we see in kind of the last gasps of polio is these very deadly outbreaks that do resist some vaccines. So what can researchers or what have researchers advised we can do to protect people? So the um, researchers behind this study uh, are calling for better surveillance to detect the spread of similar kind of rogue virus strains. And actually, there is already a system in place where new polio strains are routinely characterised by sequencing, but there are often delays uploading them to the public databases. And what these researchers want is a kind of universal public database that has all the strains of polio in there so that you can see it coming quickly and then you know target this really strong oral vaccine at, at that area if you're worried it's not protected. And on a wider scale, what what is the general state of polio and the eradication campaign? It's basically a a really good news story in a way. Um, Polio is actually only endemic in three countries now, which is Pakistan, Afghanistan and Nigeria. And the global polio eradication campaign is focused on those countries. Um, However, it is proving quite hard to actually stamp out. So some people probably would have hoped by now we might have stamped out polio in the same way we stamped out smallpox um, and we aren't there yet and research like this hints that maybe that final eradication could be harder or uh, involve more deadly outbreaks than we expect. Okay thanks Lest and to David remember you can read both of those stories and more at nature.com slash news. That's all for now join us next week when Kerry will be back with us to tell us about the science of cheese that is if she hasn't eaten it all by then. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 